Dr. Cheryl Selman, and welcome to The Love Code. Thanks for joining me for conversations that are so uplifting, inspiring, and mind-expanding. So that's really what the purpose of The Love Code is. It's to give you an opportunity to really open your heart, open your perspective, expand your consciousness. And that really is the goal for all of us, especially during times of change and transformation, which we are now in. So thanks for joining me, and you will be so happy you tuned in today because I have a conversation with Michael Cremo, and Michael has been my guest before, and he has always provided such profound insight and knowledge. I just couldn't wait to get him back. So it's just great to have him back. And before I introduce Michael to you, I just always want to remind you, if you'd like to get the archive shows from the interviews I do on The Love Code, please go to my Facebook page, which is What Women Must Know. And What Women Must Know is also the name of the other program I do on Progressive Radio Network, and that's every Thursday at 4 p.m. So if you'd like the archive shows from not only The Love Code, but also What Women Must Know, you can either like me over on that Facebook page, What Women Must Know, or you can go to my website, Dr. Cheryl Selman, and just opt in there, and I will add you to my list and to my growing community, and then we'll send the archive shows out to you, right to your inbox, along with other programs and educational information that I always like to share with my community. So I hope you'll be joining me and become part of this growing family of conscious, um, heart-centered beings throughout the world, <laughs> maybe even throughout the universe. We never know who's listening in. So let me just uh, get on with the show because we're going to be exploring the ancient Sanskrit understanding of the cycles of time and the age we are now in. So this is a really profound conversation I'm having with Michael Cremo, and let me just share a little bit about his background. Michael, also known as the Forbidden Archaeologist, is hailed as a groundbreaking research pioneer and international authority on archaeological anomalies. His landmark bestseller, Forbidden Archaeology, first published in 1993, already translated into 26 languages, challenged the very foundation of Darwinian evolution. Michael continues to dig up enigmatic discoveries in the fossil record and shake up accepted paradigms, exploring famous archaeological sites around the world, journeying to sacred places in India, appearing on national television shows in the United States or other countries, lecturing at mainstream science conferences or speaking to alternative gatherings of global intelligentsia. He is also the author of Human Devolution, a Vedic alternative to Darwin's theory. And as he crosses disciplinary and cultural boundaries, he presents to his various audiences a compelling case for negotiating a new consensus on the nature of reality. He is a member of the World Archaeological Congress and the European Association of Archaeologists, as well as a research associate in history and philosophy of science for the Bhakti Vedanta Institute. And it's always such a pleasure to welcome Michael Crino to the show. So, Michael, thank you for being with us today, and uh, and welcome. 
Well, thank you, Cheryl, Dr. Cheryl. Pleasure to be with you again. You know, Michael, you just so inspire me. I I really have to say you're a man of um, such wisdom and passion and purpose and and clarity. Um, It's just an honor to always have these conversations with you. I feel very fortunate and very blessed that I have this time and you're willing to share your time with me because you, you actually are the in my experience, the the uh, container of ancient wisdom that you've dedicated your life to, and and ha- and you've been so courageous in being able to get out there into the world of orthodoxy <laughs> in so many areas, and and shed light and greater truth. So I just want you to know, I just really honor and appreciate everything you do, Michael. Well, thank you very much, Cheryl. And I really appreciate what you do as well. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, know, in our last conversation I shared with my audience, I met you, God knows how many years ago, at a conference here in Australia. And um, it was just, you know, it was eye-opening and uh, got to see some of your presentations. And it's just nice to reconnect with you because I, I was totally inspired. I love the opportunity to expand my consciousness, Michael, and you do that for me, and I'm very grateful to you for sharing your information, your research, and your knowledge and wisdom. So that's what we're going to jump into today because what I really wanted to have you share with us from this ancient Indian, I'm not sure if I'm using the right terms, whether it's Sanskrit or Vedanta or the ancient wisdom of India, which is such an ancient culture, they have brought forth a a profound understanding of the cycles of time and these different ages and stages we're in. And and I, I, I really got fascinated by what you had to share because we are in such a time of change and transformation and upheaval and uncertainty. And I, I know you, with your research, you, you can give us a perspective on what's going on so we can move with these changes and be able to take advantage of what this moment in time is presenting to us. So so over to you, Michael, if you can just jump right in. Okay. Um, let's see. Time, according to this ancient wisdom tradition, is cyclical. In the Western world, we have a more linear concept of time. But even so, we're still very much aware of time cycles. For example, we're aware of the day-night cycle. And you know, during the days, most people are active, working, going to school, doing whatever they do. And at night, most of us go to sleep. And it's a a cycle that goes on and on and on and on. And we've adapted to it. Maybe some of us have uh, unusual work schedules and we have to adjust ourselves appropriately. Uh, Another cycle that we're very much aware of is the seasonal cycle, at least in the temperate parts of the world where there are basically four 
seasons that repeat again and again and again, spring, summer, fall, winter. And during each season, we have different sports. We dress in a different way. We uh, have different uh, activities, different sports, different foods, different clothes. So we're very much aware of that seasonal cycle. But, you know, ancient people in different countries like India or the ancient Mayan people in Central America and other people were aware of even larger cycles of time that had their special characteristics. So in ancient India, they had an awareness of a time cycle called the Yuga cycle. And there are four yugas. Uh, first, it comes the Satya Yuga. It lasts uh, over a million years. And it's a time when everything is very simple, very natural, very peaceful. Everyone is living harmoniously together without any class divisions or race divisions or anything of that that nature. And then with each progressive age or yuga, things get a little worse. So in the next age, which is called Treta Yuga, and it lasts uh, about a little over a million years, it it uh things degenerate a little bit. People begin to live in villages and cities. They're not living naturally with nature anymore. They're not all engaged in spiritual, the same kinds of spiritual activities. Things become a little bit more organized. People start dividing themselves up into different classes you know, there's an intellectual class, there's a, a, a martial class, there's a, a business class, there's an agricultural class, you know, it, it, and they start living in settled communities like villages and towns and states. And things also degenerate a little bit in terms of their social dealings, they begin to be the beginnings of antagonisms between the different groups. Then comes third age, the Dwapara Yuga. It lasts for 864,000 years. In that third age, it things degenerate even further. There are large-scale wars uh, between different groupings of, of, of people. And then after that comes the age that we're now in. It's called the Kali Yuga. And things get really bad in the Kali Yuga. It began about 5,000 years ago and and it's it's predicted to be a time of increasing environmental and social disturbance on all levels and 
it gets progressively worse until the very end of it when things are really bad people have destroyed each other they've you know and, and it, it ends and then another uh sati yuga another golden peaceful spiritual age comes and the whole cycle repeats again and again and again now it sounds like you know on one sense if we're in the kali yuga and it started 5000 years ago it's going to last another 427000 years so a total of uh, 432000 years and we've just entered it so it's uh and we see i mean i've seen in my own lifetime how things have really gone downhill a little bit but there's an advantage it's stated in some of these very ancient scriptures these very ancient vedic texts that from about 500 years ago up to about 95 hundred years from now, in other words, a total period of 10,000 years, there's going to be an opportunity to really turn things around for a brief, relatively brief period of time, after which things are only going to get worse until the very end of the Kali Yuga. So we're in this special time right now, even though the general trend is downward towards more violence and competition. I mean, you can read the Vedic predictions about the Kali Yuga, that the only way to get justice is to pay for it by bribing a judge or something, uh, that governments will tax people so much and be so oppressive that People just run away into the mountains. Yeah, I mean, the predictions, they're they're all coming true one after another. But there's also this prediction that for 10,000 years at the beginning of the Kali Yuga, there will be a special time when people will be able to really have a spiritual opportunity to get out of the whole thing. They could turn the world into like it was Satya Yuga, Golden Age again, for maybe 10,000 years or so. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful because of that. Just like, you know, when winter is coming in the temperate parts of the world, and the temperature is going down, down, down. Sometimes you get what we call an Indian summer, you know, a few warm days where things, you know, the trend is sort of reversed. And then after that, then you get the real hard, hard winter. So that's kind of an introduction to the Vedic time cycle. I mean, so, go ahead. 
Well, uh, you know, my, the question that comes up is, I mean, this is, uh, it's deep, it's profound. We're talking about cosmic cycles. Um, but, the, okay, the question is, what is the purpose of devolution, Michael? Why do we go from an enlightened era of human consciousness and existence and then more forgetfulness, more separation, more disconnect until we get to this Kali Yuga time where we have really entered into the time of the ego where, you know, we're, we're just into achieving and accumulating and disconnecting from nature into total destruction. <laughs> Fortunately, yeah. we have 10,000 years to try to live a more enlightened life. But what is from this, you know, deep and profound understanding of existence, reality, cosmic knowledge, why? Why do we devolve? Well, you're you're right in this sense. We feel uncomfortable when we're immersed in these cycles of time. You know, time has a destructive feature to it. Uh, you know, something comes into existence that lasts for some time, then it begins to decay, uh, age, and then it's finished, destroyed, and then some new thing comes. And it, you know, exists for some time, and then it starts to corrode and decay, and it vanishes. And we feel uncomfortable in situations like that because it, we in our innermost being, are, abs- are beyond that. Our, our real nature as beings of pure consciousness is to be eternal, blissful, and full of knowledge. You know, we, we know everything we need to know. We're satisfied. We're happy with our relationships on that level of pure consciousness where everything is eternal, not in the sense of never changing, but never changing in a destructive way. Because if everything were static on that level, it wouldn't be very nice. You know, there's always some new experience. Things are always changing, increasing. Not, there's no destructive force of time on that level. Uh, that level is sometimes called the sanatan level, the level of eternality. And that's our original nature as beings of pure consciousness. And there really isn't any necessity to become involved in the time cycles, birth, death, old age, disease, and so on and so forth, environmental disturbance, political disturbance, cultural disturbance, whatever. That is for the conscious selves who become a little bit selfish, egotistical, domineering, exploitative. And for for them, there has to be some alternative reality. And the material universe is that 
that uh, alternative reality. So once the conscious self is on this level of reality where it experiences these changes that go on in the different time cycles, and it goes through a process of reincarnation, it exists for a time in a certain body and develops a certain type of consciousness and desire, and then in its next body it gets a form where it uh, is able to satisfy those desires and ambitions, and each conscious self has a choice to make to be, to go back to the original position where we understand I'm a being of pure consciousness, you're a being of pure consciousness, we're all beings of pure consciousness, we all come from the same place, we shouldn't divide ourselves up into so many competing groups and do all kinds of terrible things to each other to try to satisfy our desires. You know, they, they say this country first and that country first or my group first and your group last and you know, all of that. Why don't we just understand we're all beings of pure consciousness that satisfy our material needs in a harmonious, cooperative way simplest, most natural, most efficient, most fair and equitable way and put most of our human energy into developing that resource of consciousness. That's You make that choice and your path is upward. Others make the choice to get more and more deeply involved in the competition, the division, the, the struggles, the wars, the business dealings and cheating and lying and trying to make a, make a, make themselves better at the expense of others. You, know, you can go in that direction or you can go in the other direction. It's kind of our, our choice. So that process by which a eternal conscious individual personal self comes down from that level of pure consciousness into this level of reality that we're now in. I call that devolution. But it's a process that can be reversed and the conscious self can be restored to its original pure state, which is beyond all these different cycles of time with its destructive features that we think about in terms of past, present, and future. On that level of pure consciousness, every moment is eternal. There's no destructive influence of time. Well, you know, it's such a fascinating <laughs> journey. And, uh, you know, the, um, the, the profound research that you have done is to show evidence that humanity in one form or another has been here for uh, not just thousands of years, not just tens of thousands of years, not just hundreds of thousands of years, but actually millions of years, which is part of this knowledge of the ancient Indian seers 
you know, wisdom keepers, um, which has totally changed you know, perception of reality for those that are open to understanding what you have demonstrated. I mean, you haven't you haven't made this up. You, your research has just found the evidence that has been buried that confirms what this ancient, ancient wisdom of time and cycles has has known for eons of time. Yes, Cheryl. What it indicates to me, here's the real significance of it. Yeah, I believe there is archaeological evidence that shows human beings have been around since life began on this planet. Uh, billions of years ago. And what that means is the universe is here for a purpose, and human life is the vehicle in which we fulfill that purpose. And that purpose is twofold. One purpose is to give the conscious selves who have made the decision to try to experience what it would be like to be totally independent in in the sense of not being responsible to anyone or anything in terms of a loving, harmonious relationship, but who desire to control and exploit and dominate others they get a chance to experience what that's like in this alternative reality that we call the world, the universe. So, and they also have the opportunity to, all right, I I tried it out. I don't like it. I'm going to give up my desire to exploit, dominate, control others, and I'm going to I'm going to go back to the level of pure consciousness, the ruling principle of which is unselfish love, harmony and cooperation and all of that. So it's got a dual purpose. And the form that you can achieve that purpose is the human form. So, any type of body, a plant animal or fish body or insect body or human body is a vehicle for a conscious self. And according to the level of one's desires and ambitions and karma, the kinds of the reactions to the kinds of actions one performs, one gets a certain kind of vehicle in which to function in the world of matter. But the human vehicle is considered the most valuable one because in it you can understand the kinds of things that we're talking about and act on them and hopefully act in such a way that one becomes qualified to re-enter that level, that realm of pure consciousness. And, and so that's that's why I think this evidence that humans have been around since the very beginning of the history of life on Earth 
is important. It shows us that we're not here by accident. The universe has a purpose. We're not accidental beings in an accidental universe where things just happen without any plan or uh, anything of, of, of that na- that nature. So that's the real significance of it. It's like if we build a space station and send it to outer space, we don't wait you know, for the gases and chemicals that are inside the space station to somehow or other evolve into astronauts who use the space station. You know, we make a space station because we're going to put astronauts in it right at the beginning. Not that they're going to come billions of years later by some random process of evolution. No, the universe has a purpose. Like a space station has a purpose. And its purpose is to allow those with human-like intelligence to make some progress, make some make some progress towards returning to their original position of pure consciousness. So, from my understanding, is is as people awaken to this. Uh, truth of their unlimited um, divine essence, then then um, profound things can transform. We can transform our our body. We can transform our health. We can transform our relationships. We can expand our consciousness and open up to higher levels of awareness and sense. You know, develop other senses, more refined senses, or psychic sensitivity, or our conscious awareness of our connection and this this is really the journey that we are all on um if i'm if, if i if, if that's a correct understanding of this deep and profound what we call spiritual journey is, is that yes that, you're you're absolutely true, right Michael? you're absolutely right i think you described it perfectly our lives will be better and on this level of reality and we'll also make progress towards attaining our state beyond all of these time cycles and the destructive influence of 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 time. And that that does mean as relationships become better, we become more satisfied, we become uh, we're able to use our talents and abilities to the fullest extent possible without harming other people in, in the process you know it's like I mean so many people today you know they have some talent or ability but they also have to survive in this world and then they have to take employment and, and some uh, some type of company or government agency that's in, involved in things that are really going in another direction. So it's sometimes people are faced with big dilemmas like that. 
So if if individually, you know, we become more directed towards developing our consciousness in such a way that eventually we can become free of our whole entanglement with the world of matter. Or if we're here, we, we're only here to help others, you know, to educate them, to give them assistance in their own journey to our real destination, then our lives will become individually and collectively more harmonious and loving and satisfying in every possible way. You know, we we are living in this um, on this um, kind of a kind of precipice, I would say, as we look at what's happening around us, as we look at the development of AI, we look at um, the technocracy that's happening. We we look at how uh, we're you know the the fear of um, mandating vaccines and what's in those vaccines and do we have any say? It's like this loss of control and freedom seems to be a um, a, a trend that's emerging as people become more aware of what is presenting. Um, and at the same time, there's this growth in people seeking the spiritual truths of who they are. Uh, how, what do we need to know about this time, Michael, to stay out of fear, feelings of powerlessness, and um, understand that we actually have greater um, freedom and power than we realize during times like now? Well, I mean, that, those are really excellent questions, Cheryl. I think everyone's going to find their own answers to that, to those questions. I mean, personally, I mean, my, my own personal experience is that it requires a bit of humility in the sense of, well, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, really, you know, dependent on some divine inspiration or something. So there are different wisdom traditions, you know, and and they involve, like, in India, a lot of the spiritual traditions involve seeking out a teacher, someone to help guide, guide me in this quest. And in the particular tradition that I'm involved in, I, I practice bhakti yoga. You know, I, you know, I, I became the disciple of a guru from India who who provided some uh, communities for his followers to associate with each other and and learn together, individually and collectively, how to do these things while remaining involved with this world. So, uh, so finding, I think, a good teacher. Like, yeah, you know, people go to different kinds of yoga classes, and yeah, you know, they're, they're looking for a good teacher. 
you know, somebody who can help them not not guide every aspect of their life, but help them do better what they want to achieve in terms of their goals, you know, with, with whatever it is, you know, they want to do. So that that taking a step like that is is to me very helpful and then having some something to do uh, one of the principles of bhakti yoga is that whatever talent or ability that you have it should be used for advancing towards this higher purpose somehow or other so i've always had some ability to write and research and speak and you know, do do things of, of that sort. So initially I was thinking, you know, I mean, this is decades ago going back to, you know, when I was coming out of high school. You know, I'd grown up, my father was a military intelligence officer. So I grew up among people in the CIA and military intelligence and the State Department and all like that. So I went to the George Washington School of International Affairs in Washington, D.C., thinking I, well, I'll be involved in the government. I'll, I'll be a, a member of one of these civilian or military intelligence agencies and I'll do this and that. At a certain point, I decided, no, I, I, I'm not going to do that because the more I learned about those kinds of activities, I could see, well, I'm going to have to follow the policy that my country decides on. And, and, but what about all the other people in the world, too? What's for, what's for everybody's benefit? what's for everyone's benefit. You know, that's, you know, something that I, I couldn't really see that I could contribute to by following the path I started out on. So I decided to go on a more spiritual path. And, you know, I've used the same abilities and talents I might have applied in another way for this purpose. And I'm, very satisfied with that. So one has to find some way of acting in this world that is for one's own benefit and the benefit of others as well, all others, not not in a narrow and exclusive way, uh, good for my group at the expense of your group. You know, that's not the ideal way to do things. And then I think finding a way of relating to others in terms of finding a marriage part- partner or finding some type of relationships that you can have with people in your social group or group of immediate associates and relatives and things like that. And yeah, people have an urge to travel, so don't necessarily have to go to Disneyland. You can go to a sacred place 
and take advantage of the opportunities there to become more deeply aware of your existence. Things like that, practical things, a way of eating that doesn't cause violence to other living things, practical things like that. Do you think that there are other races, other other um, you know species of humans from other dimensions or other planets that are helping us at this time, or have helped us in the past? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of beings of pure consciousness. So they all have the same source. There's a source of all individual, personal, conscious selves who is also individual, personal, and conscious. So some people would call that God. And in the tradition, the bhakti tradition that I belong to, that original personality is called Krishna. He's not just one person, it's actually two, because he has his counterpart, his feminine counterpart, Radha. So it's actually Radha Krishna with the feminine aspect coming first. So uh, if we depart from that original level of pure consciousness, the divine comes with us and is always trying to remind us you don't you don't really belong in this place where there's birth, death, old age and disease. You belong with us on that higher level of reality. So the divine comes into the world of matter and they're called avatars. Avatar means one who descends from a higher level to a lower level to remind conscious selves of their real nature. So, yes, there, there are other living entities, other conscious selves who exist in this universe to help some of the conscious selves that have lost their way here get back on the path, back to their real home, which is beyond all these time cycles that we started talking about. Because I'm so fascinated by ancient um, ancient cultures, ancient archaeology, to look at these um, civilizations that we have remains of. You, you created these megalithic structures, you, know, you look at the pyramids, you look at other structures around the world in all different cultures, but they, whoever, whoever they were, they had these advanced civilizations, which we now just have remnants of, but they had to have had an amazing knowledge and abilities to create the the structures that are just you know just reminders of something amazing has existed in the past 
in, in our distant past, far advanced of where we are even now in, in what we have recognized from the research that has been done on these ancient cultures. Like, where did they, where did they come from? Well, you know, if you look at these stone structures, whether we're talking about the megalithic structures or the pyramids or different temples and other kinds of structures that have been found in different parts of the world, and we, we should understand that they were made not just to demonstrate, you know, technological prowess, you know, that, yeah, we can stack stones you know, so high or whatever, they were connected with an awareness of a, that they were part of a reality that was ultimately spiritual in nature. And their structures were like the Egyptian pyramids. You know, you can understand they they were connected with their whole worldview which included the idea that there were not only human beings existing in this world but gods and goddesses and ultimately some kind of ultimate reality beyond this world of matter that they were ultimately they understood they were from it they were going to return to it and the megalithic structures and the pyramids, and all a lot. Most of these ancient structures were, in some way or another, connected with that understanding that there's a higher purpose to life than just finding a building that's stacking stones on this level of reality. Part of their, their whole worldview and outlook, which included these spiritual elements. So were they beings from a different age that, you know, humanity at a different age that had a different consciousness, or were they instructed from those other realms? Well, I would say instructed from those other realms. I mean, I mean specifically, you know, I, I'd refer, I don't think these things are confined to the tradition that I've chosen to identify with. I think it can be found in a lot of different wisdom traditions. But if you look in the Vedic text, souls or conscious selves are not from this level of reality. They're from a higher level of reality. Mm. And the human form of life is an opportunity to return there. So you know, it, it's almost like you know, somebody might get in a, involved in a virtual reality world. You know, like you put on one of these little headsets and you, know, you just enter into another space. Say your friend is sitting next to you and has one of these virtual reality uh, headsets on and you know, they're through their eyes, they're seeing a whole different world, they're participating in it, they're acting in it, they're moving through it, whatever. And you're sitting there and you think, okay, 
now we got to go. And you try to get your friend to take the thing off, but they're so absorbed in it, they just stay involved in their virtual reality. So then you might go to your computer and hack your way into whatever virtual reality he's involved in and just insert yourself in there and say, hey, <laughs> take take this thing <laughs> off and let's go. You've know, got to go. You know, so <laughs> it's kind of like that. We're kind of lost in our little virtual reality world here. But, you know, higher beings, you know, the divine beings are entering into it from their level of reality and saying, hey, put this thing down and get back <laughs> to your real self. We got to go. <laughs> you know, um, Indian culture is so amazing. The, um, you know, I, I've spent a little time in India a long time ago. I lived there for uh, almost two years on and off. And um, unfortunately, I didn't even get to travel as much as I really should because the temples, uh, you know, the just the creation of these temples, the the um, the uh, the people who the sadhus, you know, the gurus, this whole spiritual yearning and energy and understanding permeates the ancient culture of India. Uh, I don't. I don't even know how old that culture is. How how old is that Indian culture, as far as you might know, Michael? Uh, the Vedic culture has always existed in one form or another on this planet, or in this universe, or even in many universes that have come and gone for trillions and trillions of years. It's always been around in one form or another. You know, if you go to some of these temples in, in uh, India and you ask something about the history of the temple, the, you know, the current structure that's there now may be a few hundred or even a thousand or two thousand years old, but they, they commemorate events that have taken place on this planet millions and millions of years ago, according to the Puranas, which are the historical writings of ancient India. For example, I went to one place in India. It's called Mathura. It's near the town of Vrindavan in north northwestern India. It's about 90 miles south of New Delhi. And and in this town, Mathura, there's a temple dedicated to a person called Dhruva who saw at this place a, you know, God appeared, you know, Vishnu, form of God, appeared to Dhruva at this place, and a temple was constructed there. If you look into the Puranas, when did Dhruva exist? He existed during a previous yuga. Actually, he was existing uh, maybe about 
three or four million years ago, or even more than that, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago. So the, the temples that are now there may not be so old, but they commemorate events, which according to the Puranas, took place millions and millions of years ago at the, at, at the same location. So it's really a fascinating thing, you know, to, to realize, realize things like that. Do you think India is unique in the, um, I mean, the culture we call India, of course, that combines so many different tribes and languages, but the, the consciousness of India is unique in the world? In its well, memory, and you know, actually, if you look at the Puranas, that culture, in one form or another, was spread all over the world. And just like American culture, it's not confined to the boundaries of the United States of America. You can find evidence of the influence of American culture all over the world. Same with many other countries like Japanese culture. It's not just in those islands, you know, in the North Pacific part of Asia. It's, you know, Japanese culture is spread all over the world. So it's the same with India. You can find evidence for the presence of India's cultural and spiritual influence all over the ancient world. Uh, you can go to the Angkor Wat Temple in Cambodia. It's a, a Vishnu temple. It's connected with Indian spirituality, the Angkor Wat Temple. Uh, you can go to Indonesia, to places like Bordenpur, things like that, see the ruins of ancient Indian temples. You can find in China evidence for India's presence. Actually, even in parts of other parts of the world, like Europe and North America and South America, you can find evidence for an Indian or Vedic presence. So it's... uh, it's really a fascinating topic. That would be a, another whole discussion. It is a fascinating topic. I just want to say, remember that reading somewhere that there are Aboriginal words, some of the Aboriginal uh, dialects that are similar words to words in um, uh, in Tamil, I think in Tamil from South India, which is pretty mm-hmm. interesting right there. You know. Yeah. So there, there are things like that. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is. Uh, it is. All I know is there's more going on here than what meets the conscious mind, and certainly a lot more than what we've ever been taught in school. Uh, I, I think it's so important to have these conversations because. We do need to continually expand our awareness to break out of what I call the matrix, right? The conditioned 
belief systems and the orthodoxy, which is what you have done with your book, you know, Ancient Archaeology, you've, you know, you've, you've uh, helped to shatter the orthodox belief of who we are and where we come from, which I think is so necessary to free us, to really expand into the truth of who we are. So, so thank you for that courage and the work you've done over these decades, Michael. And, you know, we've come to the end of this fascinating conversation, and I just want to thank you because it's always so uplifting and mind-expanding when we have these these chats. And uh, I'm grateful to you because it's uh, not always easy to find someone to have these conversations with, with the knowledge and wisdom that you've gathered over the years. So. Thank you so much for being with us, and thank you so much for all that you do and the service that you provide in bringing and spreading this wisdom, ancient knowledge. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Cheryl. Of course, the conversation takes two. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not like a monologue. I mean, without <laughs> your fascinating, probing questions, I, I, I'd just be babbling along. So well, um, well, <laughs> well, I'm so glad we had this conversation, and you were able to answer some of these questions that, you that that just entertain a lot. So uh, I'm so grateful to you, and grateful to my audience. Thank you, everyone, from joining me for another um, opportunity to keep our consciousness growing, our hearts expanding, and our connection to a greater reality. So um, to all of you listening, thank you for joining me. I trust you will return again. Um, please go to my Facebook page, What Women Must Know, or DrCherylSilman.com to get all of these shows sent to you, get the archives so you don't miss any of them. And until next time, may your week be filled with love, peace, and harmony. Bye for now. Oh, and by the way, if you want to learn more about Michael Cremo, please go to his website, mcremo, that's M-C-R-E-M-O dot com, and uh, visit his uh, website, get his books, learn more, um, lots of great videos that Michael has put together. So keep expanding, keep growing, because that's the purpose of why we're all here. Till next time, take care. Bye for now. Bye.